Hi everyone. Thank you for tuning into Summons from Gallifrey. This is a podcast focused on everything Doctor Who. I'm your host Wazoo, and I want to thank you for spending some of your precious time with me as we explore the adventures of our favorite Time Lord, Time and Space, in this weekly, bi-weekly, monthly show. I haven't quite decided yet. If you're just tuning in, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. The theme that I've come up with for season one of this podcast is the Alpha and the Omega. We're going through all the first and last stories of each of the first seven doctors. This is going to be exciting. If you want to submit feedback, please send your email to mailbag at summonsfromgallifrey.com. I'll be sure to go through them on the show. If you haven't yet, please take some time and leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast network. It helps the algorithm promote the show and really gets it in front of other people who may otherwise not find it. Links for the show are in the show notes and or in the description. All right. We're going to get started with today's first episode, An Unearthly Child. Sidney Newman arrived at the British Broadcasting Corporation on January 14, 1963, to take over as head of drama after being poached from Canada's CBC network for the same position. Newman was promised full backing to shake things up at the BBC, which was quickly developing a perception of just focusing on old-timey productions and concepts. Part of the changes that Sydney made was the removal of red tape around the children's drama department and put it in line with the adult drama department, helping it to make children's drama easier to budget and oversee. In March of 1963, Newman was made aware of an upcoming gap in the production schedule, a 30-minute slot on Saturday evenings, which would fit nicely within the family primetime hours. After considering several show concepts that were floating around the department, he settled on something with a science fiction flair. Newman consulted with Donald Wilson, the head of scripts, to come up with some kind of concept. Wilson and C.E. C. Weber's initial pitch wasn't quite new what Newman had in mind, but had some promising factors that he liked, the primary one being of a time machine. While Newman wanted some younger characters in the show to appeal to younger audiences, he felt that the Doctor should be more of a grumpy old man who had stolen the time machine from his people. At this point in time, the, de- the department was hoping that the first episode would be ready for recording by around July 5th, 1963, which would result in a debut transmission for the show roughly on Saturday, July 27th. C.E. Weber took on the responsibility for putting together the show's Bible for the writers. He suggested that each story, which was also called a serial in British terminology, would have six or seven installments resulting in eight complete stories over an entire year. Each episode would end on a cliffhanger, an idea that Newman really loved. Over the next few weeks, Weber iterated on some treatment to flesh out the four principal characters. There was a 15-year-old named Susan Foreman, who would be a student of Barbara Wright, a history teacher. Ian Chesterton would be a chemistry teacher who was friends with Barbara and and was scripted to be a good-looking, heroic archetype. The doctor ended up being pitched as an old man who traveled in time and space, who was naturally suspicious and prone to sudden malice. Keeping in mind that this was a family program, 
the doctor would be the grandfather of Susan. The time machine was initially drafted as being very faulty and difficult to control, resulting in the doctor being unable to really steer it to a destination. He also wanted the ship to be nothing arty, like a giant bubble thing or something too expensive for the production team to create. Sidney Newman also came up with the idea that the time machine was bigger on the outside than out. While the concept was briefly being considered, due to production costs it was decided that the chameleon circuit of the TARDIS was never going to work, leaving the TARDIS permanently stuck in its police box form. Wilson brought on Verity Lambert as the producer, Anthony Coburn as writer and story editor David Whitaker. The BBC Radiophonic Workshop put together the main theme along with the TARDIS hum and the materialization-dematerialization sound effects. Initially, The Unearthly Child was scheduled to be the second story for Doctor Who, with the premiere one crafted by C.E. Weber. But as the summer went on, Weber's storyline was finally rejected, and Coburn's script was pushed into the premiere and the script modified accordingly. After many delays during the summer, the first episode of The Unearthly Child began recording in September of 1963. At this point, Sydney made the decision to push the release of the program to Saturday, November 23rd. That's all the backstory I have. Let's go into the synopsis. Excuse me. What are you doing here? Uh, we're looking for a girl. We? Oui? Oh, good evening. What do you want? Um, one of our pupils, Susan Foreman, came into this yard. Really? In here? Are you sure? Yes. We saw her from across the street. One of their pupils, not the police, then. I, I beg your pardon? Why were you spying on her? Who are you? We heard a young girl's voice call out to you. Your hearing must be very acute. I didn't hear anything. It came from in here. You imagined it? I certainly did not imagine it. Young man, is it reasonable to suppose that anybody would be inside a cupboard like that? Mm. Would it therefore be unreasonable to ask you to let us have a look inside? Episode 1. As the intro music for Doctor Who keeps going, we start with a policeman moving around a junkyard. It's a pretty foggy, if you can picture a pretty foggy environment, and we can barely make out that it's the address of this scrapyard is 76 Totters Lane. The intro music is still going at this point. We enter the scrapyard, and we hear the TARDIS hum before seeing it, nestled in the corner. Then we cut to Coal Hill School. It's the end of the day, we hear the school bell, and we meet Barbara Wright, who leaves her classroom and enters a chemistry lab, where we also meet Ian Chesterton. They both begin discussing a student of theirs, Susan Foreman, who's a 15-year-old that seems to obviously know far more than the teachers do in each of their subjects. Barbara thinks this is a little bit weird and starts to bring up con concerns about Susan's home life as she's always reacting a little bit cagey whenever the subject is brought up. As they keep discussing Su Susan, the two of them resolve to stalk her and find out her true home. They'll park their car near Totter's Lane and wait for Susan to walk home and see where she goes. In Barbara's classroom, we then meet Susan, who on the outside looks like a typical contemporary 60s teenager. At least she's written that way but she does drop the occasional clues about her genius level of knowledge. 
she opens up a book on the French Revolution and within a few minutes, a few seconds, she exclaims, well, that's not right, as she flips through the first few pages. The camera fades and we see Ian and Barbara parking right out in front of Totter's Lane. I mean, right out in front. Anyone walking by would see the two of them in their car. Anyway, they swap a few more Susan stories. While she's a genius, she has gaps in her knowledge that they don't quite understand, such as not understanding the current British monetary system. But I mean, who does? I have no idea how many shillings are in a pound either. During these Susan flashbacks, you start to feel a little bit sorry for her because as she's admitting that she has no idea about money or basic, basic quote-unquote things like that, uh, the rest of the class and even the teachers start laughing at her and her expression becomes more and more stressed. And while they're, while they're talking back and forth with these Susan stories, you, you get the impression that both Ian, both Ian and Barbara are in some ways trying to trip her up, not cool cakes. So then they spy Susan walking up and entering the junkyard. Again, right in front of them, the car is so close to the door, how could Susan not see them? At any rate, they leave, after a few moments, they leave their car and follow her. They open the door to the junkyard, and if you can picture a tiny kind of yard area, there's some bits of junk everywhere, as you might imagine in a junkyard, and in one corner is the is the TARDIS, which is it's pretty much the only recognizable thing within this junkyard. But they stumble over some junk anyway, and they start calling out Susan's name. They come across the TARDIS, and Ian feels it humming from the outside. They decide that they want to find an actual policeman because they think Susan's in trouble. Uh, but before they do that, they hear some coughing coming from outside the door. So they run and hide behind a, a, a few pieces of scrap metal and the doctor comes in through the doors. Just as he starts to use the key on the TARDIS lock, he turns around and notices Ian and Barbara who are now walking a little bit towards him. He immediately becomes suspicious and asks them who they are and what they want, which anyone would. With his answers, the doctor is incredibly cagey and refuses to answer any of Ian or Barbara's questions about Susan, even denying that he knows her. After a few minutes of this, Ian and Barbara are about to leave when they hear Susan's voice from within the police box. Thinking she's in trouble, they rush into the doors, and we see for the very first time the inside of the TARDIS. It is a giant control room, which is obviously bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. They discover that the old man is indeed Susan's grandfather and calls himself the Doctor. The Doctor reveals that it is a ship which Susan calls the TARDIS, short for Time and Relative Dimension in Space. Again, Ian tries to break things down for us, for the audience. A thing that looks like a police box, which is in fact a ship that can travel in time and space. He repeats himself a few times here during this part, uh, almost the same lines of dialogue three times over. Susan begs the doctor to let them go, but he refuses. He's now worried that Ian or Barbara will talk about what they've seen, and it'll lead to questions, it'll lead to police, it'll lead to just trouble. 
But he pretends to acquiesce to Susan's demands, but instead of opening the doors, he flicks a button and everyone lurches around as the TARDIS dematerializes. Whoop. Nice one, Doctor. Anyway, uh, imagine a lot of Star Trek flopping and flailing around. Everyone lean to the right, everyone fall to the left. Uh, Ian and Barbara then uh, fall to the ground and lose consciousness. This is also the longest dematerialization sound ever that you'll see. Um, if you're watching this, you'll see what I you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. It goes on for a very very long time. There's a lot there's lots of neat little camera vignettes, lots of cool little special effects, but it's pretty much the same sound effect for a very very long time. The TARDIS finally materializes on really rough terrain with nothing but with nothing but sand and rock. Ian, or Ian and Barbara are unconscious, and on the outside, we see the shadow of someone approaching the TARDIS. Cliffhanger, end of episode one. The opening credits come on, and again we leave off, or we begin with where we left off in episode one. We see the standing figure of a caveman looking at the TARDIS and unsure of, as you might imagine, of what's going on. We then see some cavemen huddled around a, what looks like a shaman type of figure who's playing with a single bone. I mean, he pictures someone who's trying to start a fire with a single bone, a bone. Eventually we discover that his name is Zah and he's trying to make fire in a spectacularly unsuccessful way. We learn that there's a power struggle in this caveman group. Cal is an expert hunter bringing in food while Zah is a descendant of the tribe leader that figured out how to make fire. The leader is the one who makes fire. We cut to Cal who turns out to be the caveman that is outside where the TARDIS has materialized. Ian and Barbara slowly regain consciousness to see, to see the doctor and Susan at the controls trying to determine when and where they are. The doctor then remarks that the urometer is broken as it's reading zero. Hmm. Imagine that. Why would a urometer read zero? The doctor and Ian get into another argument about this being some kind of a fantasy. Thank goodness this is about the last time that this conversation comes up. After taking more readings, the doctor begrudgingly opens the main TARDIS doors to let everyone out. The crew exit the TARDIS into a desolate, barren landscape. Not much, but sand and rock. The Doctor goes behind a dune to collect some rock samples to determine when they are, and doesn't notice Cal, who is watching him from behind a bush. Both Susan and the Doctor have remarked on the fact that the TARDIS still remains as a police box instead of changing its outside appearance. Cal becomes increasingly angry as he spots, the, angry is the wrong word, agitated. He becomes increasingly agitated as he spots the doctor lighting a pipe for a smoke. He pounces on the Time Lord. Susan, Ian, and Barbara hear a yell where the doctor was, only to find his hat and notebook on the ground, and his tools wrecked. The doctor is nowhere to be found. Susan gets a little freaky. She starts panicking right away. But Ian and Barbara calm her down, and they manage to all agree to go look for the doctor. Meanwhile, back at that caveman area where we were at the beginning of the episode, 
Cal returns to the tribe with the doctor slumped over his shoulder. An argument erupts between Cal and Zah, Cal trying to take over leadership of the tribe, obviously. He makes a lot of noise that he will force the doctor to make fire for him, while Zah will only let them down and they'll freeze during the next cold time, cold time when the orb in the sky leaves them. There's almost a duel between the two until the doctor regains consciousness. He's more than happy to make fire, but of course, he dropped everything when Cal abducted him. He tries to tuck his way out of the caveman group. Cal sees that his plans are backfiring, and he's just about to kill the doctor when Susan jumps on his back screaming, and Ian and Barbara rush into the tribe to help. There's a little bit of a scuffle, it's kind of easy to lose track of what's going on, but eventually the caveman tribe easily overpower the three newcomers, and they're led away as prisoners to the Cave of Skulls, to be executed when the orb shines in the sky again. There's an old woman sitting there, always, always an old woman in a tribe. The old woman tries to encourage Zah to kill the TARDIS crew immediately, but he wants to hold off into daybreak. Her opinion right away is that fire is evil and that it, it will eventually destroy them all. The TARDIS crew are bound and left in the cave, the Cave of Skulls. Ian and, Bar Ian and the Doctor notice a pile of skulls in the corner, each with the same large crack in their forehead. Cliffhanger for Episode 2 Episode 3 The Forest of Fear We start Episode 3 by opening on a sleeping chamber that the tribe is all sleeping in. The old woman wakes up before anyone else, and she sneaks over to Zah and steals a sharp rock from, that he was holding un under his hand. What, what they're calling a knife. She then is kind of neat. She then pauses for like 20 seconds and looks at the camera while the episode titles come up. Just a another reminder that this show was made in before color times. So she's standing very still, but you can tell that she's trying not to move. The credits finish and she makes her way out of the room. Quick cut to the TARDIS crew in the cave, trying to find a sharp, service, sharp surface to free themselves. The doctor is quick to complain, but Ian snaps him out of it to encourage him to come up with something to help them out. The doctor recommends they work on freeing Ian first, as he's the strongest and might need to defend the rest of them. Meanwhile, the old woman sneaks out of the sleeping area, and it looks pretty clear that she's going to try and kill the TARDIS crew on her own. After a few moments, her wakes up, which is a, I'm calling her the princess. She's the princess of this tribe. She's the daughter of one of the elders in this caveman tribe. And the elder has promised that she'll go to either Za or Cal, depending on who becomes the leader. So her, which I'll call the princess from now on, really wants to be with Za. I don't think she likes Cal at all. Anyways, the princess wakes up and she shakes Za awake and warns him that the old woman is gone and has taken his knife. They get outside of the room and they piece together that the old woman is heading off to the cave to deal with the time travelers. The princess tries to convince Za that if the old woman kills them, they won't be able to show Za 
the secret of making fire. We cut back to the cave and the old woman is sneaking in a back entrance. And it turns out that she actually wants to free the crew so long as they agree to not teach the tribe how to make fire. They all agree and she starts on cutting their, their bonds free. They then hear Za and the princess trying to move the giant rock that guards the front door to the cave. She frees the group and they escape out of the back door just as Za and the princess rush in. They take the knife from the old woman and head out after the TARDIS crew. Meanwhile, the old woman kind of passes out. It's unclear if she's dead or not, but she passes out. Ian, Barbara, and Susan and the doctor stop running to catch their breath. Ian is trying to recall their way back to the TARDIS, but they're more likely heading in the opposite direction. As they stop to rest, we cut to Za and the princess heading after them. The crew finally get moving again, and Barbara lets out the biggest scream ever as she sees a dead boar pig thing lying on the ground. They end up hiding nearby. Za and the princess soon make it to the dead pig and start looking around. There's a snorting noise, and a creature that we don't see jumps out of the underbrush and attacks Za. Barbara refuses to leave and instead wants to help him. Ian and Barbara work on helping Za clean his wounds a little bit and realize that his weapon likely killed the animal and that most of the blood on him is the animals. The princess slowly realizes that the crew are trying to help Za, so she helps them too. She fetches some water from a nearby stream. The doctor is still urging him to get back to the TARDIS while they can before the rest of the tribe finds them, but instead Ian convinces Susan to find something to make a stretcher with. Meanwhile, back in the Cave of Skulls, the old woman was indeed just unconscious. She starts to get up just as Cal enters the cave and starts to interrogate her. He comes to the conclusion that Za helped the TARDIS crew escape and has gone with them. He draws a sharp stone, a knife, and kills the old woman. Meanwhile, the doctor is doing nothing but watching Ian, Barbara, and Susan put together a stretcher for Za. Back at the tribe, Cal is perched on a stone preaching to the people that Za and the princess have gone with the strangers to keep fire for themselves. Her, the princess's father disagrees and Cal says the old woman who is in the Cave of Skulls knows what's going on, knowing that she's, well, knowing that she's already dead. Of course, the tribe enter the cave to find the old woman dead. Cal tries to convince everyone that Za and the princess had freed the prisoners and are trying to take fire for themselves from the tribe by killing the old woman. He wins leadership over the tribe and they agree to give chase. Ian, Susan, the doctor and Barbara, along with the princess, are carrying the stretcher back to the TARDIS to get medicine for Za. They reach a clearing where they see the TARDIS only to be quickly surrounded by Cal and the rest of the tribe. Cliffhanger for episode 3. Okay, episode 4 starts off with right where we left off at the end of episode 3. The whole crew are taken back to the tribe's headquarters. Cal again tries to walk through the logic, explaining that Za and the princess freed the prisoners and went with them. The princess desperately tries to defend Za, but she know, but the, the mood of the people is definitely against her. After Cal accuses Za of the murder of the old woman, 
The doctor points out that Za's knife has no blood on it. He goads Cal into pulling out his own knife, revealing that there's indeed fresh blood on it. And with the help of Za, Cal then confesses that he did kill the old woman. With more goading from the doctor, they convince the entire tribe to turn on Cal and banish him. Za regains strength from this and retains his leadership position. His first act is to have Ian, Susan, the Doctor, and Barbara led back to the Cave of Skulls as prisoners. They cover the entrance again, and Za also posts a guard at the back entrance. Za then convinces the Elder that he is indeed the leader, and wins the Princess's hand. Za then asks the Princess what happened while he was unconscious, and the Princess explains what the crew did, and does so without lying. Za seems to respect them for not killing him while he was unconscious, but comes to the same conclusion that he had the day before. Either the TARDIS crew teach him how to make fire, or he kills them all. Za goes into the cave to find that Ian is already trying to make a fire out of sticks and flint. He repeats to the crew that if they teach him how to make fire, he will let them go. But if not, the tribe will kill him. The tribe are getting restless as dawn starts to break and there's still no fire. The elder tries to convince the tribe that Za has again gone alone to, to set the crew free, but her reminds everyone that Za has left a guard posted. Speaking of which, Cal pops up behind said guard and kills him. He surprises the crew in the cave, and he and Zar finally have their showdown. It's one for the ages. It's a real barn burner. They wrestle back and forth. There's a lot of flips. A lot of punches, a lot of kicks. It's actually a pretty good fight. After much wrestling later, Zod defeats Kyle and kills him with a boulder to the face. Pretty big boulder too. Outside, the elder is holding his own daughter, prisoner, princess, prisoner, and demanding that the tribe fetch Za from the cave. Ian hands Za a torch, a lit torch, and he goes out to face the tribe establishing his rule as leader. He who makes the fire rules the tribe. Instead of, but instead of setting the TARDIS crew free, he leaves to get meat while still keeping the TARDIS crew prisoner. After he leaves to go hunt, the crew beg and plead with the princess to let them go, but she refuses to disobey Za. She leaves them and Za comes back. He gives them food and water, but refuses to let them go. Susan then comes up with an idea. She sticks a skull onto a burning torch, which triggers an idea from Ian. They gather up four skulls and plant them around the fire pit, each of them on a torch of their own, and hide at the far end of the cave. The princess comes in and screams, which bring in the whole tribe. They kneel in sorrow in front of the skulls, thinking that they are the dead TARDIS crew, that fire had killed them. Meanwhile, Ian, Barbara, Susan, and the Doctor had snuck out the cave's back entrance and are running through the forest back in the direction of the TARDIS. Za eventually figures out they've been tricked and leads the tribe in a hunt towards the TARDIS to recapture the crew. The crew reach the TARDIS and they manage to get inside just as the tribe catches up to them. Spears are thrown through the air just as the TARDIS dematerializes. The TARDIS materializes onto another planet, and the crew go off to refresh themselves. 
oblivious to the radiation meter on the TARDIS console quickly moving into the area marked danger. Cut and end credits. That's an unearthly child, folks. Let's go through the numbers. So the premiere episode, An Unearthly Child, had 4.4 million viewers. Cave of Skulls had 5.9. The Forest of Fear clocked in at 6.9 million. And The Firemaker, the last episode, had 6.4 million viewers. Overall, I think it was a really good introduction to the series. It's surprising how much of the basic concepts have remained in the show ever since its opening story. We'll continue to explore that as we go through the rest of the episodes in this season of the podcast. There's some, of course, there's some production techniques that have changed over the years, so it's neat to see some of the original vision that the crew had come up with. The way that the intro music still plays for a few moments into, into and out of each episode is kind of neat. And the way that the episode ends over the cliffhanger with credits scrolling over the cliffhanger still in motion is pretty cool too. We almost get a cold open of each episode as the titles appear after a few minutes of episode footage as opposed to during the intro music sequence which they are today. The main characters from the start are all strongly written with specific traits and roles which are quickly identifiable to us. We get a lot of reminders that the Doctor is a loner and very much an alien. He does help, but he's far from the picture of an old grandfather that he slowly turns into as William Hartnell himself develops the role. Ian and Barbara are youngish reasoned adults that take, that's more or less take a position of an everyday man or woman that the audience can identify with, while Susan is more there to engage a younger audience. Ian is a natural leader who often clashes with the Doctor, but they're each sort of reasonable enough to let the other take over control of the group. Instead of having the story end at the conclusion of the four-parter, the show ends on a small cliffhanger of the next story the the crew will encounter, which is pretty cool. I kind of like that. It was a real solid opening story. I think the cast was chosen well. The the cast of the cavemen were, were chosen well. Each of them uh, put in a pretty good performance. I think the fight scene was was pretty well done. I think the 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 only thing that felt a little drawn out was the, was the some of the dialogue in episode one between Ian and the Doctor. It kind of got a a little bit repetitive. Ian and Barbara kept trying to reassure Susan that she was living in some kind of fantasy, or that the Doctor had been bewitching her somehow, mind controlling her, I don't know, uh, to that make her believe that the machine traveled and moved around when in fact it doesn't. Although I'm not sure how they would still be pursuing that story since, or that argument, since considering how, where they were when they finally entered the TARDIS. At any rate, uh, I, I suppose it's kind of a natural reaction to that kind of situation, which kind of made sense. It did fit in with the story, but I'm really glad that it was it was quick and dealt with in episode one and didn't spill out over the rest of the rest of the episodes. As for review, that's pretty tough. It is the opening story. Definitely you feel some warts. 
that the production team definitely had and the actors for that matter definitely hadn't figured out for the show which is totally understandable given that it's episode one so i think i would give it a i would give it a three out of five i do recommend it if you haven't seen it before but i it's not something that i'm going to go back to more than once or twice actually maybe once <laughs> and there you are that's it that's episode one of the podcast focusing on an unearthly child again if you have any feedback for the show please send it to mailbag at summonsfromgallifrey.com and i'll be sure to go through it on in the next episode don't forget in the next episode we'll be looking at the 10th planet william hartnell's final episode as the first doctor thanks for tuning in everyone hope you have a good evening day wherever you are bye